You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Christian paradox of resting and wrestling. So the more I work in the Word of God, exegetically work through books of the Bible, some time ago I had the joy of preaching through the book of Romans for four years, (laughs) spent four months in Romans 8 alone, and As I work through books of the Bible, both in preaching and in teaching and in personal study, there is a theme that comes up again and again, and it shows up again as I attempt to counsel God's people from the Word of God. It is not the word contradiction. The law of non-contradiction stands. God is not a God of contradictions. A thing cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same way, but He is a God of paradox and mystery. And there is a baked-in tension as you work through God's Word verse by verse by verse. And I have come more and more to realize that when a believer looks at me with tears over loss, uncertainty, fear, virus, fill in the blank, and yet they say, I'm scared to death, but I'm joyful. Am I crazy? I say, no, no, you're just feeling that paradoxical tension that's baked into Scripture that says we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6.10. Some theologians refer to this tension as the already not yet paradigm. Already not yet. Here's what I mean. We already experience union with Christ now. There is therefore Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, we've not experienced full union with Christ and seeing him face to face in resurrected bodies and in a new heaven and new earth. Already, not yet. We anticipate the sudden return of Christ. We wake up every morning, maybe now, Maybe this 2020 season has caused us to be more eschatological than we've ever been. When we wake up and say, come, Lord Jesus, we experience the longing for his imminent return, and yet we also experience the ongoing delay of that return. There's a tension, isn't there? We are thankful for the good gifts that God gives in this life. We are thankful for good food. We are thankful for fellowship. We're thankful for, we are thankful for good coffee. And the saint said, amen. Coffee is a means of grace. Debate me. But as C.S. Lewis says, if we find in ourselves a longing that this world cannot satisfy, it is evidence that we are made for another world. So on the one hand, we already say, thank you, Lord, for these good things. We're not Stoics. We're not ascetics. We don't live in monasteries. You know, we enjoy the things of earth, and yet we are never fully satisfied. Today's passage, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11, is a classic example of this kind of God-ordained tension. And it's all baked into Peter's Opening phrase, 1 Peter 1 1, he's writing to who? Not just exiles, but elect exiles. 
There's a tension in being foreknown and loved, and yet I'm not home yet. And it marks everything in our lives, doesn't it? As we seek to be salt and light, love my neighbors, preach the gospel to everyone, and yet I know that God sovereignly calls. And that I can't wrestle anyone into the kingdom. And yet I'm called to go. Peter is calling us to embrace this tension, this paradox. Specifically, as I look at our text today, Peter wants us to learn to rest in God's promises while simultaneously wrestling against the things that threaten our faith in our pilgrim's journey home, things like the world, the flesh, and as we'll see in our text, the devil. So if I were to boil this down, if you were to say, okay, Pastor Aaron, there's a lot going on in this text, and and there is, how would you boil it down into one sentence? Here's what I would say. We are simultaneously called to rest in God's promises while wrestling against unbelief. What is normative Christian living in a fallen world that we both love and yet are not at home with, especially at a time like this? I would say we are simultaneously called to rest in God's promises while wrestling against unbelief. And Peter calls suffering Christians, remember the context of 1 Peter, to those that are dispersed, Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia, Asia, they're out there living the Christian life in a pagan culture. Some are being martyred for the faith. If you're close to Rome, this is right at the threshold of Nero's persecution. But as you get further out, it may not be governmental genocide necessarily. It may just be life in a fallen world. There's a huge spectrum of suffering in the audience of 1 Peter. And Peter calls suffering Christians, whether it's a blade to our neck or loneliness that is choking the joy out of our lives. He calls us number one, and it's a mouthful, I apologize, to the pride-killing joy of humble dependence. He is calling us to the pride-killing joy of humble dependence. Look at verse six. So you just got done in verse five telling suffering Christians God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Picks up on that in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. When he says, humble yourselves, that's a fine translation, but it is a passive imperative. Literally translated, be humbled. Be humbled. It's, it's more of being acted upon. I was humbled, I was acted upon my freshman year of high school when I tried to play basketball for the first time. I was acted upon and humbled because I was the worst player on the team. So he says, be humbled. Interesting. So the question at that point when he says to suffering Christians, be humbled, how? How am I to be humbled? What what am I to look at? What am I to feel that is to bring me into a state of humility? Well, he says here in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God is Old Testament shorthand for be humbled by remembering the sovereign, 
almighty, omnipotent power of God. Remember who it is we are dealing with. In that one little phrase, the mighty hand of God, Peter is snapping our minds back to everything he said thus far in his letter, and that is that we have an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven. God caused us to be born again. He is sovereign. He gave his son to redeem his people, and he rules all things. And in verse 11, he'll remind us, and this God has all dominion forever and ever. This is not a local deity. This is Yahweh. He says, be humbled, saints, under the mighty hand of God. How are we to be humbled? There's a comma at the end of verse 6, not a period. That's important because it goes into verse 7. Humble yourselves, therefore. How? Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on that God. Anybody struggle with anxieties in 2020? I've been fighting anxiety since I was a kid. This is very, very personal to me. How am I to be humbled? By casting. Epiripto, it means to throw upon, like putting a blanket on a horse. It means to take your anxieties, fear, and throw it on the very, very capable shoulders of a God who creates universes and black holes and molecules ex nihilo from nothing. Now, run that backwards. Peter is essentially telling us, then, that the root of worry and fretting and anxieties, notwithstanding physiological factors. I get that. I'm, I'm, I'm with you in that. I would never go to a fragile saint who struggles and say, well, just turn off your anxiety. Sometimes your body just can't catch up, right? But at the root, Peter is telling us that our anxieties, which are many, especially right now, could be and are likely a manifestation of pride. Because look at what he says. Humble yourselves by casting your anxieties on him. Run that backwards. If you don't and you keep them, if you coddle anxiety rather than casting anxiety, you're not humble. Anybody else struggle with the inclination to try to be sovereign over your reality? want to live in a black and white world when in fact everything is gray and there's only one sovereign, it's not me, it's not you. You know how much anxiety is caused by trying to play sovereign? I think 2020 has taught us how little in control we are. It's a time for good theology, brothers and sisters. Peter is calling us to the pride-killing joy of humble dependence by saying, humble yourselves by casting those anxieties on him. And you might, at that point, you might say, I get that. Practically, I get that. I, I know what he's saying. I should just give it to the Lord, but I'd, sometimes I don't trust. Sometimes it's, it just feels better to hold on to him. Like, how do I know what God's going to do with them? How do I know he's for me? There's so many saints 
that struggle. Because they struggle knowing in my brain that Romans 8, 1 is true. I'm not condemned if I'm in Christ, but my heart still tells me he's not for me. He's not for me. I can't trust him with this. And that's why we need probably one of the sweetest phrases in all of Scripture. Peter knows what it's like to struggle, right? Have we forgotten who's writing this letter? Peter? Dude cuts off ears, jumps out of boats, denies Jesus, has to be restored. It's him. And what does he say at the end of verse 7 to fearful saints? Cast your anxieties on him, beloved, because he, what's the antecedent to the he? Who? God Almighty. Universe creating, sun sending, devil crushing, inheritance keeping God because he cares for you. What can coax these fingers to let go of anxieties and to let go of control, which I really don't have anyway? Phrases like this, Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the mild love that he had. He's tolerating you, beloved. Go ahead and give your anxieties to him. That's not what it says. If your translation says that, throw it away. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves you. You count yourself among the saints of God. You need to hear that, anxious saint. God Almighty has great love for you. When he calls you to cast your anxieties on me, he's calling you to do something that feels scary, but he's, he's more than capable and he's more than willing. Sometimes we need to remember us sovereignty lovers that Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 has a very critical preposition. He not just predestined you, in love he predestined you. So, suffering saint, fearful saint, we are called to the pride-killing joy of humble dependence. Cast all, all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And if you doubt that, just look at the cross. If he's willing to do that, for he who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he did that, will he not complete what he began in you and take you home? Peter calls suffering Christians to the pride-killing joy of humble dependence. And number two, he calls suffering Christians to the faith-guarding battle of shared resistance. The faith-guarding battle of shared resistance. What do you mean? Well, verses 6 and 7, here's that tension again. Remember we talked about that? Verses 6 and 7 are some of the sweetest promises to say, rest in him, rest in him, put your anxieties on him, he cares for you, rest in that promise. And wrestle. Look at verse 8. The New Testament speaks this way. Without any qualifier, without even taking a breath, rest on the shoulders of God. And verse 8, be sober-minded. I think it's the third time Peter calls us to a 
a cerebral cognitive awareness. Be alert. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It, there it is. Cast all your care. Rest in him and fight to the death. You feel that? That's normal Christian living. He says, be sober-minded and be watchful. The devil, another name there, the word devil could easily mean slanderer or accuser. It says he is actively searching out Christians to devour. And you ask yourself, devour flesh? Lions eat flesh. Just watch that on YouTube. I don't know why it popped up. It was a lion versus a water buffalo, and the water buffalo won the day. But the lion was trying to eat flesh, and so I look at the analogy and was asking questions of the text, what is it that the devil wants to devour? So where do we go to learn the MO or the modus operandi of the devil? How does he operate? One of the clearest places we have is in Job. So I think we're going to use Job to shed some light on 1 Peter 5. What is the devil trying to devour from suffering saints? In Job 2, verses 4 and 5, we have the very words of Satan. It says this, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but, this is the devil, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. Think, oh, he's trying to kill our flesh. No, 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 it's not what the devil's after. And he will curse you to your face. That's what he's after. The means to apostasy is really immaterial. Take his house, take his flesh, touch all these things, but what I want is for Job to curse you and to renounce you. He says it twice. That was in Job 1, and now in Job 2, Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So when I lay that text over 1 Peter 5, and I ask, what do you mean, Peter? Why are we sober and watchful and vigilant? He says, be careful, sober-minded, sober hopefully suffering saints, because there is a devil there's an adversary who prowls around seeking to devour faith. Fear, loneliness, taking your job, taking your possessions, taking loved ones, all that is a means to an end. That in our suffering, we would curse God. And that's why Peter, who knows what that's like, Peter knows that temptation. Weren't you with him? I recognize you. No, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. What does Peter say? And I would imagine there's probably a little resentment and gritting of the teeth here when Peter's like, I've been here. Help. I'm trying to help you. Verse 9, he says, resist him. Firm in your faith. 
knowing. Interesting. Resist the devil firm in your faith. Amen. It is faith. So there's a wrestling, but it's a wrestling of faith. And Peter's always going back to the the brain to get to the heart. Resist the devil firm in your faith, but there's something else you need to know. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And I thought, what, what's the connection between resisting the devil, preaching the gospel to my heart, knowing what I believe, regardless of circumstance, not giving in to the temptation to curse God and die, but I'm also knowing something else, and it's that there's out there in the world similar sufferings are being experienced by my brothers and sisters in Uganda and in China and in North Korea and in Brazil and in Minnetonka and in Florida and on and on and on. Is this a misery loves company thing? Like, why do you want me to think about this fellowship of suffering, Peter? And I, I think... What Peter wants us to know, two things, is that no soldier fights alone. We love the lone soldier movies, you know, where you go off by yourself, and that's rarely the case. You normally go in a squad. Every Wyatt Earp needs a Doc Holliday, right? Do you not draw strength from one another in this race for faith? There are times when I come in and I don't want to raise my hands when I sing. There's times my heart is cold. But what does God the whole what means does God the Holy Spirit work through to increase affections for him is when I look over and see someone with joy saying thank you Jesus and somebody with tears saying oh God but I know that it's the spirit at work and I say yes we're in this the same work that he began in me and her and him he's going to complete and when it says Peter says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When it says being experienced, it's from the word family of telos. It means to finish or accomplish. So what he means is, when you're suffering, resist the devil, firm in your faith, guard your faith, Lock arms with other believers of antiquity who made it home by God's grace and those today that God is preserving. Lock arms with them and know that there is a telos, there is a goal, there is a filling up of affliction function to the suffering. It's not pointless is what he's saying. God is sovereign over your suffering. Not one drop of blood is wasted, not one drop of sweat is wasted, not one groaning prayer is wasted. God is not wringing his hands saying, what are they doing now? What's going to happen to my people? And no, no, no. It is all calculated and it will all be made right. Not a lot of strength when you lock arms with people who pray to a God who says, I'm not sure what's going on. There's a lot of strength when you lock arms with people and pray to a God who says, I know. And on the day that I determine, I will make all the sad things come untrue. Peter has called suffering Christians to the pride-killing joy of humble dependence. Cast your anxieties on the very capable shoulders of God. Number two, he's called us to the faith-guarding battle of a shared resistance. And finally, 
Number three, Peter calls us to the hope-giving promise of final perseverance. The hope-giving promise of final perseverance. Rest in him. Wrestle. Fight. But here's the cherry on top. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, pause. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty mean, Peter. Some of these people are losing their lives. Some of these people are losing loved ones. Some of you as Christians, if they, I've been suffering for years as an elect exile. I've never felt at home in this place. Ever since my eyes were awakened at my new birth, that's when the fight began against sin, my sin, being sinned against. What do you mean after you've suffered a little while? Some saints, it's been years and decades of prayer for unconverted loved ones and heartache. It's not just 2020. Suffering has been the birthright of believers from the moment they took their first breath when Jesus said, live. What do you mean, Peter, after you've suffered a little while? He's talking to suffering Christians about a comparative value. He's not being dismissive of your pain. He's not being dismissive of your exilic status. What he means is what Paul said in Romans 8.18. Paul, who knew suffering, shipwreck, beatings, lashes, isolation. What did Paul say in Romans 8.18? He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. That's what Peter means. Peter would call us to have one eye on the present and one eye on the horizon of the new heaven and new earth at all times. After you have suffered a little while, and I, in my Bible, I circled little while, and I drew a line to the end of verse 10 where it says eternal glory in Christ. That's the comparison. This time, little while, but our inheritance is eternal. He says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all, what? What do we need to run this race? What do we need to persevere through suffering? I need grace. And he is what? One of the names of the God we serve is the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And look at this reflexive noun. I love that. Will himself. Not a hireling. God is not so aloof as to not trifle with his people. He says, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All of those words indicate wholeness and permanence. That is not a prosperity gospel message. That is a resurrection, eschatological, new heaven, new earth, outweighs any suffering in this life. This God will do that. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you forever. And just in case there's a little shred of doubt, 
No, she just long for the day, not just when sickness goes away. Corona, you think, oh, I just long for the day when, vi- when viruses are gone. Yeah, but if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, what's the cry of your heart? I long for the day when sin is gone. I long for the day when I can hear a sermon and not immediately have to be wrestling with doubt before I even get out the door and distraction and the whispers of an accuser that says, I know what you did 10 years ago. I can't believe you're even here today. So I long for the day when that is gone. Oh, that day when free from sinning, when I see his lovely face, that's the prize. Amen. So if you're struggling with any inkling of doubt now, he gives you verse 11. You think, but I look around and it doesn't look, it looks like the devil's winning. It looks like sin is winning. It looks like darkness is winning. I talked to a guy this week getting some work done on my truck. I love my truck. Amen. Even though it cost me an arm and a leg. And, the guy, and he was a sweet brother in Christ, no doubt. I mean, the guy's tearing up talking about Jesus. And I was, but he said something when he said, uh, you know, all this suffering in the world, you know, I just, I know, I know that it's, you know, the devil's in charge of this world and God doesn't like it like this. And everything in me, I just wanted to preach. You know, but it, I'm like, Lord, give me grace. But this was in my head. Look at verse 11. To him be the dominion. Dominion. Power, sovereignty, governance, when, forever and ever. And so I, as much as I could funnel my excitement, I said, hey, brother, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, aren't you glad that Scripture again and again and again tells us that Jesus is king now and that he's ruling now and that he is sovereign over everything now? Isn't that good news? He's, yeah, amen, yeah. The way things go with my truck, I'm sure I'll see him again. But if you're wrestling with any doubt, hang on to verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, fellow suffering Christians in the dumpster fire that is 2020, and some you're like, 2020 is nothing new. Between unsaved loved ones, my own sin, and an uncertain future, I've felt this tension my whole life. Beloved, I beg you to kill your worry and anxieties at the root, which I would argue from our text is the pride of self-sufficiency and a distrust of the promises of God. And that's coming from a sinful man who constantly tries to be sovereign And my father lovingly, constantly disciplines me to remind me I am not. And paradoxically, there's a lot of joy in that. As we seek to be salt and light, and again, I said 1 Peter is a blueprint. When you read in the Beatitudes about salt and light, you think, how do I do that? 1 Peter is a blueprint for how to be salt and light in a culture, with government, in the house of God, with your neighbors, As we seek to do that, as we go out with this tension of loving and pleading, of being in the world, but but not of the world, of living and moving and working and 
but never quite feeling at home. May 1 Peter 2.12 happen. Look at what Peter says. 1 Peter 2.12, and I'll close here as we take the Lord's Supper. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Salt has to make contact. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they say, you're weird, you don't do the things we do, you don't talk the way we talk, you don't, but yet you're here and you're loving us, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Could, could 2020 be a unique platform for evangelism, unlike the days of comfort? I think you know where I stand on that. And I pray God would give us grace to do that. Let's pray.